Parker, it, it also is like a factor of intelligence. So I trained Parker as well. And Parker was so much harder to train. Huh. He's just, he's just not that bright. <laughs> he's bless him. And he's not very good at being a cat. So <laughs> it took me like a month Aww. to get him to like, let me shake his hand. And uh, Kankuro was like, you've got food. I'll do anything. I'll do anything you want. How do I get more? Can we do more training? I love this. So I have, I have him target trained now. He'll like jump on my couch He'll like wow. jump from chair to chair. I can get him to go under tables and stuff like that. I can get him to high five. I'm starting to train him to do down low so I can go too slow. But then like, wow. I don't know if I'll have enough time for that last one, but we'll see. How many, how many cats are in your residence right now? Just the one? Just the one. Okay. I had two, uh, but they fought. So we still. Uh, yeah. See, no, my cat can't be around other cats either. Yeah. Uh, see, I've never tested this other than well like when i first got indie there was piquette the the senior cat but like that was the indie as a kitten getting introduced to a senior cat that was willing to tolerate her i i have no idea what would happen if i brought another cat into my house right now yeah (laughs) not not every cat can do it and it also really depends on how you introduce them i think even more than how Mm. cats are so speaking of cats let's find out what's going on with lion cat So we are the trade readers and we're reading Saga today. So we already had an episode with Saga volume one. So maybe if you haven't listened to that one, you should listen to that one first. Or it might be a bit weird, but <laughs> not here to judge. Listen to whatever you want. This one, we're going to be talking about volumes two and three of Saga. And it, this discussion will include spoilers for all of all, uh, up to the end of volume three, but not the whole series. Which is a chapter, just want to check what chapter that is, because people might have different editions. We are going to chapter 18. <laughs> okay. <laughs> All right. So we talked uh, a lot about characters and about our first impressions of the book last time. Oh, and we, our... yeah, we have our, uh, we talked about Brian K. Vaughan and Fina Staples, who are the creators of this work. So if you'd like more information on their biography, that's also in episode one. But we need to do a character rebuilding question. Sure. (laughs) What was a book that really influenced the way you behaved? Ooh, good question. And very on on theme. Good. I did all my work thinking of that, so I'm going to let you answer while I think of my (laughs) answer. It's a tricky question to answer, though, too. All right. I mean... I would say that when I was first really getting into comics, I discovered the works of Alan Moore, starting, of course, with like Watchmen and dove into all of his different works. But, you know, I would say a particular note actually was like the Swamp Thing series because it was, it really dug into this idea of like consciousness and like what it means to be alive. Cause essentially the, the big reveal is we're not going to cover it. Uh, the big reveal in Swamp Thing is like that 
he was a man who thought he got turned into a plant, but it turned out he was a plant that thought it was a man. Like the plants absorbed this man's consciousness. And so he had to abandon the idea that he would ever be a human again and just figure out his new life as a plant. And it kind of led to him becoming basically like a nature God at the end of the whole run. So I'm going on a big tangent here, but like, essentially like it was, it was the first time that I'd really thought about like consciousness and like a reality and existence and just like what it, like how your thoughts shape the world around you. And that's sort of something that is repeated over and over again in a lot of Alan Moore's work. And you, you see it like, especially in like Promethea later on. And I don't know, I think that's something I really carried with me for a very long time is sort of like how your thoughts kind of like, they don't necessarily, it's not the secret, the secret's bullshit, but like your thoughts kind of focus you on things and like, what you're focused on sort of guides your behavior and that tends to sort of make the reality around you what it is. And so if you really want to sort of change the way things are for yourself, you have to sort of reframe it in your head first, you know? Uh, and that's something I know I carried with me for a very long time. Which one are you? Oh, sorry. <laughs> thank you. Uh, and I, I'm, I'm the one that forgets his name all the time. Uh, hey, not we all do that. <laughs> <laughs> Be more specific. Uh, I'm the one that goes on really, really long tangents about Alan Moore and his name, Jeff Ellis. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. I'm Jonathan and I've been trying to think of the book to answer this question with. And uh, like there are, there are definitely fiction books that have had a big influence on me, but the only one I can think of right now is a nonfiction book, Guns, Germs, and Steel, mm -hmm. which is not, it's not a perfect book in terms of sort of summing up the, the history of colonialism, but it was a really, really good introduction to ideas about uh, why colonialism happened and how it happened. And basically it takes the stance that uh, of sort of, I guess you would call it a geographic perspective or geographic determinism maybe where the, the reason Europe took over the world is simply a an accident of geography and not through any sort of inherent biological or cultural traits. And, and I think that's a really important thing to learn because if people don't write books like that, then where will you learn that? Because a sort of a, a more sort of general uh, casual view of history will leave you with totally the wrong ideas. And I, even though it's like, there are other books I might even recommend as better than Guns, Germs, and Steel. Certainly for me, that was the one that sort of set me on this path of like, oh, wait, like there, there's a reason the world is so unfair and it's, uh, it's something that can be undone. Nice. I'm glad you chose a nonfiction book because I was feeling self-conscious that I also chose a nonfiction book. Uh, so wait, did we say who you are? I think we did. Yeah, I did. Yeah. Okay. Well, I'm Jam. And uh, the book that I think most influenced my behavior is actually a marketing book, technically. It's by a writer named Seth Godin, who blogs every single day and has for well over a decade. And he wrote, he's written several books, but the one that I'm thinking of is probably his least marketing-y one. 
It's called Lynchpin. And the crux of this book, uh, I read it when I was working in a cubicle and I was feeling really like a cog in a machine and very down on my life and very down on what my life could be. But Lynchpin asks you to re-examine your role in society and your role in the world. And it, it contextualizes it on the premise of art. But they're saying that your art can be anything. Your art could be how you smile when you greet your customer. You know, your art can be how you bring yourself to cleaning an object or maintaining an object that is your profession. So it asks the reader to, to reflect on what is their art and to really refine the art that they bring to the world. And that book really framed my perspective on how I approach my work and how I approach the choices that I make. And uh, I think about it a lot to this day. I've read it probably over 10 years ago. Okay, let's, uh, let's talk about Saga. Do we want to do yeah. uh, the sort of plot summary first this time? Yeah, I'll do the chapter two, three plot summary. Let's do it this way. So the reason we're talking about books is because the whole impetus for this whole shenanigans that we're talking about is actually a book. And it is a book by a man named uh, Oswald Heist, D. Oswald Heist. And he wrote a trashy romance novel, but the subtext of the trashy no romance novel was actually an anti-war pacifist screed. And uh, somehow through a twist of fate, this book found its way into the hands of Alana, who was a guard for the landfall forces on a backwater planet named Cleve. And she really resonated with this anti-war pacifist message and somehow struck up a rapport with one of her prisoners, who is Marco, who fought for land, uh, for beef, I should say. He also read the book and he also resonated with the message. So the two of them decided to elope and had a child. And this really offended everyone because these two cultures have been at war for a really long time and uh, uh, the existence of a child might cause political problems. So everyone's out to get them and they have escaped in a wooden rocket ship and they have decided to set their course for the world of D. Oswald Heist. They wanna go meet their favorite writer. So they're on a ship Meanwhile, trying to like come back to the beginning of book two. <laughs> it does. Yeah, it is very, these two volumes like jump around a lot in time, especially. It, they do. They we, do. So we, we get... open with Marco searching for Isabel and his mom on Egg Planet. So there was a planet that actually was an egg or something. And uh, the group splits up. So we have Marco and his mom and Alana and Marco's dad, who is dying and plot is happening there we also greet <laughs> Gwendolyn who has run into the will and they go to rescue uh the slave girl and then at the end of book two this egg planet kind of hatches and you know stuff hits the fan and they yeah, okay. And then at the end of the book, I think it's actually back in time or something like that. It's a little bit confusing. Yeah, I'm actually a little lost. It's been a long time since I read this. <laughs> um, let's see, um, what else is in volume well, three? There's okay. the volume two. two that's volume two. I haven't even yeah. gotten to volume three yet. Yeah. So okay. volume three is a little bit more focused on the world called Quietus, which is where Heist lives. 
and then they they do have the two journalists right who are upshur and doff and yeah. they've come to their tabloid reporters and mm-hmm. somehow they got wind of this like salacious news of a child between someone from Vanfall and someone from Reith. Uh, and they come into this information, but then they are silenced. So there's like kind of two, two main plots that are happening in book three. There's Upshur and Doff, Marco and Elena and Quietus. But there's also the slave girl who is now Sophie. Sophie and the Will and Gwendolyn on another planet who have become stranded and they start to, uh, the food causes them to hallucinate and Sophie Mm. ends up stabbing the Will nearly fatally. And so book three kind of ends with the Will almost died, you know, he's in hospital and we meet the Will's sister uh, who's called the Brand and she's another freelancer. And Upshur and Doff have been silenced by the brand it's like a curse and so yeah. the brand finds out that upshur and doff have discovered the secret and then she has been dispatched to silence them so if they tell the secret they'll die or something like that i forget how the curse works something like that yeah 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 so that's kind of the the plot stuff that's happening in books two and three but yeah it is a lot and it does jump around a lot mm-hmm. there's so, there's also Sorry, oh. it doesn't summarize well, but it reads better than that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I was going to say there's also kind of the big confrontation between Prince Robot and uh, Geit or Heist. Yeah. Um, right. Which I like, I will say, I think that to me was one of my favorite moments in this series was like this extended scene between Prince Robot and Heist and like, um, you get the impression that Prince Robot has beaten Alana and Marco there. And there's this extended scene. And then the end of book two, you cut to like Alana, Marco and family, like in the stairwell guns at the ready. And they're like, you know, we we've actually been there for like two weeks now, you know, and, and that's the end of book two. And I thought that was such a great, I don't know, kind of cliffhanger ending. And then of course, like you pick up book three and you're like, no, we're somewhere else now. Oh, <laughs> did you want resolution on that? Yeah, we'll, we'll get there eventually. Yeah. Um, well, I think book three <laughs> opens with them actually arriving two weeks ago. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. So it is interesting and it is a, a really interesting way to, to do that. Narrative suspense, narrative suspense by means of time manipulation, maybe. Mm. Uh, I thought, I, I agree. I think that one was quite skillfully done and it was surprising mm-hmm. and yeah. uh heist is also a really interesting character to me oh yeah yeah, yeah. like his, his sort of ties into like the existence of this character really speaks to the theme of the story a lot i think so you've had thoughts on the theme and i want to hear more about that okay so let me start with some of the things i didn't like about the book and then i'll can tell you why i think the theme kind of solves them Okay. So um, we did talk a little bit last episode about the, the world building or lack thereof where, and I don't think it's just the art. I think it's the writing as well. Like neither of them really flesh out the universe that this story takes place in very well. We see the individual planets that the plot takes place on and like weird aliens and creatures and things. But other than the original pitch that there's these two forces in perpetual war with each other, or perpetual proxy war. We don't really know anything else about this, this universe and how it works. And 
often the world building is basically just patched in with stuff from present day, like 21st century America, where like things that uh, like the, the way that the military looks and acts, the way that the prison looks and acts, uh, like a lot of it is just like, oh, it's the US in the uh, 2010s. Uh, and that, on the one hand, that kind of feels sloppy. Like if you weren't gonna put a lot of work into world building, that's the thing you would do is just like do the stuff you know. But with the introduction of Oswald Heist and the, the book that he wrote, as this trashy romance novel that's is like secretly a pacifist screed, I feel like that's very obviously an author insert character to the point where like no one is supposed like you're not expected to not like it, it's not uh, a secret. It's it's like you're supposed to know this is the author writing himself in. I see. And mm. I think the trashy romance novel is Saga. <laughs> and the reason that the world building is a little bit sloppy is entirely intentional because it's supposed to be this like it's it is the america in the 2010s like it's not actually a star wars universe that you could do like all these other movies on later down the road it's like no it's just like that's the fun part is it's in space with and people have magic but the point of the story is like, no, we're talking about right now. That mm. tracks. That's interesting. What do you think he's trying to say about right now with Saga? Uh, well, that's a maybe a little less clear. And I'm not sure I would enjoy the story more if it was more clear. Mm. I, I just think that he's, maybe the, the point is that it's the power of art to be able to affect the world. And also the art doesn't have to be quote unquote good. We're given <laughs> lots of examples of like really trashy art in, in universe that ends up being powerful. Like the two journalists work for a tabloid or there's this sort of like subculture of these like soap operas, which That's are right, like yeah. no one in the story really takes these soap operas seriously, but they're, they are actually, they like connect together people in a way that other media maybe doesn't. But that's and, like a book four, book five thing. So. Oh, okay. Well, I, I don't even remember book four, book five. But we're at least introduced <laughs> to the idea here. I think so. Uh, and uh, also the... Yeah, the, well, uh, yeah, Alana gets the idea to, right. yeah, to she, star in these soaps. Or yeah, they, the seeds are planted, but you don't see them grow until the next book. Yeah. yeah. And this sort of trashy romance novel. And I can, I can kind of get what he's saying about that and that this is a book that is designed to kind of fly under the radar of these two empires who both clearly have very strong ideas about propaganda and what information can be known. And this book is designed to be ignored by them because it's a trashy romance novel. And much like comics, which is also a not highly considered medium. Um, Until this one, the Hugo, oh no. <laughs> Well, science fiction isn't highly regarded either. That's so true. I think that's, that's still... That's true. Okay, it's genre. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah. It's accepted as genre literature. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I think, I think that's kind of what he's trying to tell us, at least as far as these volumes go, is that like art has a purpose and it can affect the world, even if on the surface it doesn't seem like it's taking itself that seriously. Hmm. Interesting. Yeah. I mean, 
I'm, I'm kind of curious, like, I think, yeah, I, I think all that really tracks John. And then I'm now curious to keep reading more and see if that continues to track as like our timeline moves forward with the saga. Cause like when this was written, I think there's still like a lot of discussion about the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. Mm-hmm. And that tracks really well with this sort of ongoing war that's happening. But if, I mean, saga is still being published today. Like, I don't know, like does like a giant, orange show up and just like ruin the whole universe or something like well, <laughs> the giant orange is a symptom but oh, right, uh, right. <laughs> they they do go into other themes which is or i should say other areas of focus like for example in book four i would say like we divert quite a bit into addiction and identity perhaps uh and so it's interesting to say that that could be a meta theme I don't disagree with that interpretation. I think that's an interesting and very valid point, but I don't know how strongly it comes across. Let's put it that way. Okay. I'm and to be sure fair, like, we don't know. Artfully if... constructed, yeah. Okay. <laughs> I mean, it's also, it's also worth noting that in book three, like, uh, the author kills his own self-insert character. Oh, you um, have to. So, I mean, so, if you're going to yeah, write yourself yeah. into a story, you have to, like, yes. take yourself apart, too, right? Right, right. Otherwise, yeah. you're just, it's, like... Being Stephen King. Well, see, I, I, it's funny because I was going to say that, like, when when we really get to know Heist in book three, and like he has when they first meet him, he's like like in his bathrobe with his empty bottle of booze, and he's you know, and then like the voiceover is just like, no, no person you're ever going to meet is more disgusting than a writer or something. And I just found myself like rolling my eyes and like, oh God, like writers writing about writers. Like it just makes me think about Stephen King whenever he's got a writer character. And you're like, oh God, writers shouldn't write about writers. Yeah. <laughs> this is the one book where I'll make an exception for that rule though. I really like the way he sort of like pitched this author insert character in a way that sort of doesn't overwhelm the story. Like he becomes important to the story because this ties to the theme, at least my idea of what the theme is. Yeah. But yeah. He doesn't then become the main character and then, oh, we have to care what happens to Oswald, a.k.a. Uh, yeah, Brian yeah. K. Vaughan. Yeah, no, it's true. I mean, it could be, it, it was it was no lady in the water. That's for sure. Like, <laughs> uh, yeah. Was... I recently read Vonnegut's <laughs> Breakfast of Champions, which I love Vonnegut. I don't know if I would recommend Breakfast of Champions because of the way it handles racism, which is well, not mm. my cup of tea. But uh, what I loved about it was, I so writers writing about writers is one of my least favorite tropes because it's all like, oh, writing is just this noble and misunderstood career and writers are such beautiful souls and they're just so misunderstood and like breakfast of champions is like writers are terrible people and you should never know them just try and go through your life never knowing any of them they're awful 100 like, yeah i think oh, that's I think- why i like oswald as much as i do is because yeah. he's really not that great a person like he's got a, his his purpose his intent is good and noble etc cetera, etc cetera. but like he's really not that great on a personal level he's <laughs> okay He's a yeah. mess. Yeah. Uh, but I think I like that. I like that he's a mess. Yeah. He, he's got he's got good reasons to be a mess. Yeah. He's, yeah. he's the right amount of mess. He's the right yeah. amount of mess. Yeah. I, I, I would definitely say like in the later chapters when there's sort of like an implication that there might be some attraction between him and Marco's mother, like that, I don't know, kind of rounded out the edges on the character for me. 
I think it was just like the introduction. I was just like, oh my God, like it's just like the most like hackneyed, like I'm a writer and I'm writing about writers. We sure drink a lot of whiskey, don't we? And you're just like, oh God. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's, you see a lot of that in this series too, where your first introduction to a character or an idea doesn't necessarily tell you how that idea or character is going to play out. I mean, yeah, he, he, he grew on me as a character. Uh, I would say more so in, yeah, book three, where you actually yeah, spend the week with the family, getting to know him, him getting to know them. Like, yeah, it, it, again, like, I don't know, this is like maybe similar to like the things with the will where like in yeah. book one, the whole slave girl thing, I was like, oh, this trope, cool. Like, haven't seen this enough. And then, like, yeah, it kind of went unexpected places. Like, when they're stranded on the planet and they're all seeing things, I was like, where is this going? And then when Slate, like, or sorry, Sophie, uh, when Sophie, like, stabs the will in the neck, I was like, what is happening in this story, you know? And, uh, like, the big, I don't know, I, I actually, just, like, the big payoff for me is, like, at the end of this whole arc with the will where, like, Gwendolyn... They fly to find Marcos because they want to save the Will's life with Marcos' magic. And that brings like all your characters into the same room together and everyone's shooting everyone and everyone's getting like Prince Robot gets shot and like, like all the shit hits the fan. And like, I, if you told me this is the end, I would have believed you. But like just the, the way that out of nowhere, the brand shows up and you find out the brand is the Will's sister and... And then you find out that his sister's name is Sophie and he named slave girl Sophie for a reason. Like to me, like that's like, as soon as like you find out his sister's name is Sophie, I was like, oh wow, like it all comes together. <laughs> this story arc has earned itself now. <laughs> yeah, yeah we, we talked about the strength of the characters last episode. And I, I really feel like that continues to be the strength of the, the work is... The, the plot can be a little frustrating sometimes because it's just plot, 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 plot. But it like every plot event also builds the characters further, which is that's not an easy trick to pull off. No, and it's I, not. I'm impressed with the series for that. You're right. Like there is a lot of plot and I feel like it goes at a pretty decent pace, which is hard, which is really difficult to do as a writer. So there definitely is a lot of strength there. So I think last last time we said like the strength of the the writing team here was in characters. I think maybe in these two books, like you're also seeing a lot of plot, mm. which is good, but maybe not so much the theme yet. Maybe not so much the world building. We'll see. <laughs> yeah, well, it's, it's hard to really know a theme until you get to the end, which is I think yeah, for sure. one thing that this series, assuming it has an end, which I'm pretty sure it will at some point well, well, we don't know we'll see yeah <laughs> we don't but, know uh, we know that, there are nine books yeah, <laughs> yeah. i mean um but that that's i think gonna be the file final nail in the coffin between this separating this from like x-men um mm. in that it can have an ending yeah because endings are important i mean yeah i i yeah like i think seeing some of the smaller arcs pay off i think gave me hope that like you know, like, okay, there is some kind of a plan or there is some kind of a structure here that this is going to, we're going on a journey and this is going to take us somewhere, you know? So just, I think that, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm interested in reading more, um, which I will say like reading 
past where we we were going to end here answered one of the big questions for me, which is like, I didn't understand how these robots fit in. I was like, mm-hmm. wait, it's a war between the people with horns, and the people with wings. And now there's people with television sets. Like how do the television set people fit in? Uh, and then like immediately the next issue after book three, they're like, we're going to go on a side tangent and tell you about the television people. And I was like, Oh, cool. Like, yeah. It's, all it's making a little sense bit now. confusing. Yeah. I don't know. I, I don't know how I would want that to be different. I guess I feel like what John was saying earlier where it just felt with the details in star Wars that even if you didn't understand the logic of the world, that there was a logic to the world, but I don't feel like that was done well enough in this series mm. where it just felt like it's kind of the way that you described a airbrushed background. Mm. I felt like that was narratively true as well. Yeah. It was yeah, like you had sure. an airbrushed kind of sketchy background for these characters and it's like, oh, okay. Well, they felt <laughs> real and authentic, but not necessarily that the world, the world did not feel as like it mm. didn't come to the same level. Mm-hmm. so it's like you had and maybe it was the discrepancy between the two that was so jarring because the characters are so good and so solid and so authentic feeling that the world does not feel authentic and solid feeling to the same degree mm-hmm. yeah and it's interesting because like comparing this again to star wars which is i guess something the authors have done so uh, that's fair ground for us to do that too <laughs> um like if you look at like original original star wars uh, it gives you the impression that there's a lot of backstory and world building. I'm not sure there really was. I think he was just taking like things from everywhere he could think of, like, let's put some Dune in this. Let's put some Flash Gordon. Let's put some mm. um, Metropolis and just throw it all together. And it'll look like we b- did the work to build a backstory. And I'm not sure that's necessarily a better choice because then you're not actually doing any more work than mm. is done here. Um, this is just done that, but with the present instead of other science fiction stories. Mm. That's true. Like I, I would say, I mean, I think maybe one advantage that star Wars had, or I don't know, maybe something star Wars did differently that seemed to work is like in some ways, those big holes in the backstory work to star Wars advantage because it was like a compelling enough hole that the fans were just like inventing things to fill that space. Mm. And then the mistake that, in my opinion, sorry, in my controversial opinion that's going to get me burned down on Twitter is that like actually going in and defining all that stuff afterwards was the big problem with Star Wars. Like just establishing, oh, there was this clone war. And at some point, Anakin Skywalker became Darth Vader. I guess really fascinating and compelling, but like, don't tell me about it. I don't need to know how we got there. Right. And I don't know, in some ways, like maybe that's uh, like at this point in where I'm at with Saga, I think like if they were to go into the nitty gritty of the politics of like how Reef and Landfall came into conflict, I might be dissatisfied with that. So it's like, might, might be good to just keep it a little bit vague and like, Hey, there's two planets that are warring. That's all you need to know. Let's focus. Let's micro focus on these two characters that are, being affected by that conflict, but maybe we don't need to have a big intergalactic Senate scene to like flesh that all out. Yeah. And I think, I think you're right because I feel like 
if they were to write that backstory, I don't know that they would do it in a way that I would like. Like, if you, I've been trying to think about like, what are the real world influences on this, this sort of like conflict between these two sides? Because we're told that there's these two sides and they've been at war forever and they um, like they have all these proxy wars around the, the galaxy. And we're like supposed to believe that this is like this unjust, unwarranted conflict, which is fair enough because I think most conflicts are. But I think the one part of that that kind of doesn't really connect to anything in the present day is that the two sides are sort of evenly balanced and evenly responsible. Mm. And I'm not sure you can necessarily say the same about present day conflicts mm. or even things that at a surface level might seem like there's these two sides and they hate each other. And it's like, often there's one side that has more power than the other. Mm. Uh, you, like could, I was, you could arguably say that's landfall in this case. Maybe. I think it's it's been shown that like landfall has the technology and they have more influence over a lot more of the world. Like quite often, if we come across another world, it's one that's controlled by landfall. Okay. But I that's... do think that like they're portraying the conflict as being fairly evenly matched. Mm -hmm. That's not something I had noticed reading it, and I, that might change my opinion on this then too. I, you've, you've said a bunch of interesting stuff, and it's, it's helping me to, to halfway coalesce, so I, I apologize that I am still only halfway coalesced on this opinion. Well, this is but, why we have a, a podcast about this, so we can talk <laughs> to each other and think these things through. Yes. <laughs> uh, I, I'm reflecting on ways that I've seen this done in various other stories. And let's say you have like the Lord of the Rings tactic, which I think goes way too far in mm. exploring the lore and lost mm. me. Uh, Star Wars, I think also, I agree with you, Jeff, it eventually went too far in explaining it and lost me. I was thinking about your comment earlier, John, that this is, in actuality, commentary on our present concerns, mm -hmm. uh, so to speak. And what was confusing to me is I felt like if that had been a little bit more clear, and if the various players in the story mapped a little bit more cleanly, so you could say like landfalls the US and wreath is Iraq or whatever, Afghanistan, uh, that didn't map. And then like the robot kingdom is what, like mm -hmm. Russia? Like it's confusing. Yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, no, I think that definitely, <laughs> if, if that were the case, I think the metaphor would completely fall apart. Yeah. Mm. And so that's, that's confusing to me. And so then I was thinking about it a little bit and I'm like, what would make sense is that if you don't flesh out the world, you should still see real world effects. For hmm. example, if there is this war that is being felt by proxy, you should see that the people in the native world, like the, the incident, uh, the, the incepting world for this conflict starts to lose interest and it starts to feel really distant. And in a later chapter, you actually do see that. So we do go back to landfall and it's suburbia. And mm -hmm. uh, so you see that. And if there is an unjust conflict, there should be conscientious objectors. So we do see that. Mm -hmm. And if there is a conflict, there should be external parties who are reporting on that. And we do see that. So I think that's something that Saga is doing in a way that's interesting and good. Mm. But yeah, I don't know. I don't know. 
<laughs> I don't know how I feel about it. I don't have a, I don't have a concrete opinion. Yeah, I mean, not. I mean, just like I trying to like dig out, tease out like a more like themes and ideas. I feel like certainly what's really compelling to me about Alana and Marco is sort of the idea that they're going against what society's expected of them. Like, it's just kind of like, well, as a good landfall citizen, you should just want to brutalize these wreath prisoners. And like, as a good wreath citizen, you should just be repelled by anyone from landfall. And the, and I like that kind of the idea that these two people got together and had a child and that like, it's blowing everyone's mind. Like the, Hazel is such a symbol of these two people completely going against their societies, like just against everything society's laid out for them to do. They're like going against it. And I don't know, I kind of appreciate that. Like, I, I don't know how well articulated it all is, but I do sort of appreciate that within Saga, there's sort of this idea of romanticizing these two people that are not doing what society's prescribed for them. That You know, they're sort of cutting their own path and just not listening to what other people are telling them to do, you know? Yeah. And I can see the uh, appeal of that. On Twitter, I think we would say, he a bit confused, but he got the spirit. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I think that uh, what Jeffrey, you just said, that kind of brings it back to, like, I, I feel like the there's an emotional truth to the characters that if there is this sort of, Intracted war going on and you have two characters from either side of the war who are trying to sort of go against the grain and be the peace that they would want to see in the world it doesn't matter how the war started from that point of view mm. like their personal sort of like character arc still feels like that's the strong point of the story like that's the part that's true and then we're back to like the world building not really being very figured out. Or important necessarily. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that's, that's the tricky thing is like, I'm that's, that's kind of what I'm saying with this um, detour with Oswald heist is that I feel like the, the thing where you flesh out the world and make it more believable isn't the purpose of the book. Mm. Right. Right. It doesn't help the agenda of the creators to do that. Right. I mean, I guess also like in a series that's going this long, when you start to define things, you run the risk of kind of tripping over yourself too, because like the more you establish stuff, the more then like you're going to have fans like, whoa, wait, like, <laughs> wait, how could he be tied up? He could have revealed the secret. And da, 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 da. like, <laughs> Well, I don't know. I think I would trust Fran Kavon to yeah. not... <laughs> write himself into corners like that. That's one thing. I would, I, I would agree. That. I'd say that's a writer's job, man. <laughs> <laughs> when writers don't do that, something has gone wrong. Yeah. Right. It's a writer's job. <laughs> but I mean, I, I, I guess, I mean, just like maybe that's why part of why he's keeping things a little bit more vague. Cause like the more you define things, then the more you're kind of locked in where if you keep it a little more loose, it gives you the flexibility to take your characters where you want them to be or where you feel they need to be because if you have too much lore then you're kind of locked into that lore you know yeah we don't really know how much we don't know for sure that he's written the ending of this or knows what it will be and that's not something he would tell us i don't think so hard to know whether that's he was 
He was involved with Lost, so I mean, oh, I don't think he is the reason that Lost ended poorly. <laughs> yeah, we're, we're not gonna we're not gonna put him on a spec for Lost. Uh, that's Lindelof. That's. <laughs> um, do we want to comment at all on the art in volumes two and three? I remained fantastic. Uh, I don't have any distinctive memories between books one, two, and three. But I will say, like, it doesn't matter how good or bad the world building is, as long as I still get an opportunity to look at the way Fiona Staples draws teeth. <laughs> like, I, don't, I don't care. They're just really, really, really good. Yeah, no, uh, I'm, I'm actually looking right now at the page where uh, Marco's mom is talking, like, pretending to talk to a skull. And it's like, yeah, <laughs> no, there's just like, that is the expression of someone pretending to hold the skull up to their ear and talk to it and listen yeah. to it. Like, yeah. You can't draw a better version than that. Yeah. yeah. And I think um, in volumes two and three, it especially had a few really good choice of moment. Like uh, there's a conflict that stands out in my memory of when I think it was, we were looking at Marco and he was in his cell and he was being uh, attacked by one of the guards. Like something about like, I, I don't exactly know how to put it, but usually when you are describing an action visually, you describe kind of the apex of the action. So if you think of someone being punched, you would see like the hand connecting to the face and somehow Fiona chooses a moment that's like slightly before or after in a way that's really interesting. Hmm. And uh, I find it really changes the way that the action comes across and is mm. really compelling to me. Uh, that's interesting. I'm going to have to look through this again and look for that. Yeah. It's weird. I don't know how quite how to put it. I, um... I, Maybe I snapped one. Let me I mean, I, I mentioned this in the first episode, but I will say, like, because I finished volume three and then immediately went back and started reviewing volume one again so it was fresh in my memory. And, like, I I definitely sort of noticed the art seemed to, like, I don't know, like, I, I didn't notice it when I was reading it through the first time, but I think, like, going back and flipping through volume one today, I feel like... Fiona Staples really found her groove like through the process of like volumes two and three and just specifically flipping through volume three. I see a lot more line edges in the background and like adjusting character lines to sort of integrate them more and like more detail in the background. So I feel like some of my, I don't know, my reservations about the backgrounds in the first volume get addressed as, as the series progresses. So I think, yeah, I think Fiona Staples continues to grow as an artist with each issue, which makes me really excited to see, like, <laughs> where things are in, like, book book <laughs> nine or whatever. <laughs> yeah, also, at least in the edition that I have, each chapter has an image that I assume is the cover of that 24-page comic, and the covers are just phenomenal. Yeah. Like, these are some of the best, like, 24-page comic covers I've ever seen. As a, as an illustrator, it's it's unusual because illustration is a different skill from cartooning, mm -hmm. and Fiona is really rare that I feel like she does both really really well. Like her panel, her normally when you have someone who's a really really strong e illustrator, their sequencing and their paneling kind of falls down and is kind of weak. I do not see that with Fiona at all. I really mm. love the way she panels too. Mm. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Like each cover kind of evokes the story without laying it out too much and like gives you interesting shots of characters that are in the story without telling you very much of the story. 
Yeah. And it's just like, and they're done in a slightly different style as well. They're sort of more painterly. And yeah, yeah I, I would, if I went inside comic book stores and I bought monthly issues, these are the ones I would look at first because they look so good. Definitely. Yeah, I, yeah I'd, I'd love to know what brushes or, yeah, like, effects or i know i'd love to watch uh, a live recording of fiona staples drawing in clip studio so i can see what goes into these mm. yeah i i read on wikipedia kind of a snippet of an article that says that she intentionally keeps she what she likes about the digital process is that it allows her to move a little bit more seamlessly from pencils to final stage mm. like she doesn't necessarily go through multiple layers she just kind of corrects as she go mm. which yeah. is interesting it's more like uh I don't know. I haven't seen this live stream that you're describing, but oh, I was, I, that I, might be a hint to her process. Yeah. I mean, I don't know if such a thing exists, but if it does, I want to see it. That's yeah. <laughs> yeah. I, like I was, I'm just noticing here that the only artist that's credited, there's a, there's a letterer, but the only artist credited is, is Fiona. So she's doing her own coloring as well. Yeah. And you can see that in the style where, yeah, it's like, she's obviously moving between penciling through coloring and, not necessarily doing them in the sort of assembly line order that most comics are. Yeah. And so that's definitely not unheard of, especially more on the indie spectrum of comics, but it is impressive for someone who is probably working on close to a monthly schedule to do all of the portions herself. Like Mm -hmm. for sure. Yeah, is nothing but respect for Fiona. Is Zaga I actually this is the one thing I like completely went past me but is saga through vertigo or is it through image it's image i thought it was image okay. yeah okay yeah. so it is it is considered creator owned but i consider image kind of hybrid like they're not mm. they're not like a random house where it's like write a book and come back to us it's different they're they they live in monthly world right they do um, but they don't really have i don't know if they have editors now i remember it being a big deal a few years ago, people talking I, about the lack of editing going on. Yeah, I, I've, I have some friends who've worked at Image, and like, it's interesting because like they like the lack of editors because it just gives them a lot more creative freedom. But like, my understanding is that you sort of have to come to them with like a completed product, so you sort of have to have your first twenty-four to thirty-six issues basically drawn drawn out and like ready to go and like they'll flip through that and go like okay yeah we'll release this monthly but like they kind of need you to have a back catalog and know that you kind of have a direction to go in because they don't want to sign off on a series and then have it just like fizzle out um interesting but like yeah they, they i guess that's one thing that makes them different from other independents is it's still monthly where like yeah like first second or fantagraphics they're doing your graphic novel for you, but image is still like, well, pitch us on a series and then we're going to print 24 issues or 24 pages a month until. Until it stops making money. (laughs) Yeah. Until AMC signs a deal with you or whatever. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, I also looking at the art because, and Jam, you mentioned this last episode that you felt it was kind of like a hybrid between a superhero style and a sort of more independent style. And I I really like that the pacing is more like the the choice of panel and the pacing of the story is more on the independent side of things. It doesn't read like a superhero comic. 
I agree with that. That's why I can read it. Yeah. No, me too. Like, I used to read lots of superhero comics, and then I stopped doing that for a long time. And when I tried to go back and read superhero comics again, um, the pacing is just too weird. I can't do it anymore. It's it's different. It's not bad. It's just different. And oh, it's like yeah, reading. that's exactly it. Yeah. Mm. It's based, I feel the same way as when I'm reading something in French, I feel like. Mm. Mm. Oh, yeah. Down. Like, European comics have their own pacing stuff that I find difficult to read. I mean... I, yeah, I think, I think that the, I would say my impression of Saga is that it feels like the idea is that maybe you're supposed to read a graphic novel's worth and kind of get the story from the graphic novel, but like each 24 page segment is enough of a, a spurt that you can kind of like get something out of each issue. Mm-hmm. But like, yeah, I think the last time I've read like a Spider-Man comic, it's just like, okay, everything has to feel complete. Like you have to feel like you've got a beginning, middle and an end in this one issue. Cause we're not taking it for, we're not assuming you're going to be here again. So like, this is it. But then if you keep reading, you're like, why do they keep repeating what just happened in the previous? <laughs> like, yeah, it's like the pacing is really, really odd on superhero comics now. Cause they're sort of meant to be these self-contained, but then also interlinked things. Yeah. I don't know. I don't know. I think Saga doesn't suffer from that in the same way, you know? I think Saga reads pretty well as a trade. Yeah. I've only ever read it as a trade, so... Mm -hmm. I'm a dirty trade reader, (laughs) as we all know. I think that's why we we do this, isn't it? That's why we're here. A safe space for dirty trade readers. We're we're not the the monthly issuers. (laughs) We're the Wednesday Wednesday Warriors. (laughs) That's a much better title. But that's not us. <laughs> that's not us. That's I'm, sure, I'm sure that exists. I'm sure that exists. The, the, the pole box. Pole box crew. Yeah. Yeah. Um, okay. Any, let's maybe do final thoughts. Anything else anyone wants to say about these books? I'm good with <sighs> final thoughts. I mean, yeah, I just think in particular, I think, like I said, volume three for me felt like it really resolved a lot of arcs. Like it left some things still dangling, but like, I, if if I had decided like I didn't want to read more saga, I would have felt very satisfied that I had sort of gotten this like little three three trade arc. But like from now, also starting the next trade, like there's definitely more more to go. So I would say if you like the first three, keep going. I would agree with that. As someone who is up to date on saga, I would say if you read the first couple bits and you like where it's going or you like enjoy if you're enjoying reading it you will continue to enjoy reading it it doesn't it's not the type of series where i'm like oh slog through this first bit it really pays off later it's like i I think it keeps it a pretty nice intensely good quality however the flip side to that is that if brian kimon's writing or like if the quirks of the way he writes are pissing you off by volume one that is not going to get better uh (laughs) arguably only gets worse and uh, mm. there are there are high points and low points in this series where I'm like, uh, but I have persevered all the way to volume nine miraculously. <laughs> Not a small thing for me, and I will continue to keep current on this series until it does something unforgivable. <laughs> yeah, like I, the first time I read this series, I got to volume four and then kind of gave up on it. And I think rereading it for these episodes and then spending a couple hours talking to all of you with uh, about it. Like the more time I spend with Saga, the more I enjoy it. 
So I don't know for sure if I'm going to go look for more volumes because part of the problem with that is will I be able to find the same, like, am I going to be able to find like the skinny volumes still and not the gigantic massive ones that I want to pay for? But I would probably enjoy it if they were sitting in front of me and I read them. You would not, you would not look a saga horse in the mouth. I would, (laughs) I'm going to, I'm actually gonna, I'm gonna put Saga forward as like a good candidate for like a comicsology read. I would say just, you know, I know I know you're a big fan of of the print volumes, John, but I would say Saga just because of the size of it and the fact that they've just collected into a much nicer, more affordable package. Like, you know, I'd say if someone, especially right now with the difficulties in getting out to stores, I would say like <laughs> give 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 it a read on comicsology, guys. I think you can actually get the first chapter for free on comiXology if i remember oh, probably I have that first yeah chapter. and i i would say it doesn't lose anything for being digital i've, okay. I've only read it digital i love it mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i'd say if anything it probably muddles out in print oh controversial Ooh. <laughs> it's a it's meant for the backlight no i'm sure fiona i'm sure fiona balanced it perfectly but i think it's great in digital. Yeah, i can see what you're saying i think like having only seen the print version like these would not be bad with some backlighting. Yeah, yeah, yeah. With, like RGB yeah. as your full range of colors. Like there's some like there's some books where I would be like, yeah, holding the book in your hand maybe enhances the experience. I just feel like Saga's one where you're like, no, nah, just just you know, it was designed on a screen, read it on a screen. Like, you know? Yeah. Sure. Okay, it's all good. <laughs> uh, and yeah, I I have recommended this to people as like a, a beginner's comic. So, like, if you don't read lots of comics, I think this is a suitable read as well. Uh, I would put some age limitations on it. Maybe don't buy it for your younger teen. (laughs) I would say maybe 16, 17 would be the earliest I would recommend for a work like this. There are some, there's some scenes. There's lots of swearing. There's lots of death. There's a lot of on-scene gore. There are, like, seriously disturbing things discussed and depicted. Mm -hmm. Uh, So, yeah, mature readers yeah i'm gonna let my let my nephew finish reading bone first (laughs) 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 okay we didn't do shout outs last episode do you want to do shout outs this time i have a shout out okay so i'd actually like to shout out a book which is another previous trade readers book which was a manga that we covered called your lie in april and at the time I read the first book that we read it together and I thought it was a really competently produced manga. I'm like, this is a good manga. It does manga things really well. It is a manga. I have since watched the anime of that manga. It's also called Your Lie in April. It's available on Netflix and Crunchyroll. It's 12 episodes long. I am upgrading my assessment of this series. It is art. It is really good. It is a really solid investment. Your Lion April is a great, great series. And I thought it was really good. Cool. Hey, good yeah. to know. Nice. Okay, I'm going to recommend, uh, let's see if I can say this right, Dakwakada Warriors by Cole Pauls. He is an indigenous artist from the Yukon. And this graphic novel is basically half written in his language. And it's really well done uh, not just as a comic as like a fun sort of exploration of like let's do a fun science fiction comic with all these indigenous elements but also it's really well done as a language learning tool it has like footnotes for all of the 
the vocabulary words, but they're introduced gradually so that I actually spent very little time looking at the footnotes and just kind of like intuiting what was going on just from the words as they were on the page. Wow. Which mm. is like, that's impressive. I did not know that that was something that was possible and I enjoyed reading it. Nice. Oh, that's great. All right. Well, I'm going to shout out a previous trade waiter. I'm going to shout out Kathleen Gross and her book, Joe, an adaptation of Little Women, sort of, because uh, I got my copy in the mail when it first came out. And that's one of one of the few comics I read during my weeks in quarantine. And uh, I preemptively of reading Joe, I read Little Women. So uh, I really enjoyed comparing this sort of modern day comic take to the original work. And uh, I highly recommend uh, read both. Read Little Women and read Joe. And good job, Kathleen. That's going to be my shout out. Uh, I have not read Little Women, but I have read Joe. And as someone who has done one and not the other, I still enjoyed it. So um, read it even if you haven't read Little Women. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, you should. But if, if you want an experience, comparing them is fun, too. Cool. Very good. Okay. Uh, we are the trade waiters. We are not in a library right now because there's this pandemic going on. We're all at home. What? Uh, so thanks to the internet for letting us continue trade waiting without access to a shared space. Yes. Uh, and you can find us on the internet. We're there somewhere. Yeah. Maybe Forever. put some, we'll put some links. No, we won't. <laughs> <laughs> Google exists. <laughs> whoa, whoa. That's how we should do our sign off now. Google exists. <laughs> okay. Uh, bye, everybody. Bye. Yeah. Thank bye. you for listening.